And now, more sports and torts with David Spada and Elliot Herring. All right, we're back on sports and torts, and here we go with part two of our interview with Ken Hawk Harrelson. You were mentioning about Cleveland, uh, but the only the good thing about joining Cleveland was you weren't going to have to face Sam McDowell anymore. Well, there's two good things about it. Uh, you don't get to face Sam, have to face Sam anymore, and you don't have to make any road trips there. <laughs> yeah, but but you were there for for half of your games. <laughs> no, <laughs> but uh, now I what I did was. Unprecedented in the history of baseball, uh, when I held out like that. There were seven players involved in the deal and none of the other six could play until either they rescinded the deal or I reported. So after all, I went through this and, uh, finally agreed to terms in New York, uh, the commissioner's office, uh, they changed the rule. They called it the Harrelson rule. It used to be what it was up to the team that traded you to get you to where they traded you to. So after I did held out like that, they changed it to whereas it's up to the team who traded for you to get you there. That way the players wouldn't be held up. The other players wouldn't be held up. And the only way, you know, they're going to get you there if you didn't want to go was what? The more money. So it was a, it turned out to be a huge, uh, a huge factor in the salary structure of baseball. Uh, Jimmy Cannon was a very famous and a great sports writer in New York. And after we did that, uh, Jimmy, there must have been, I don't know, hundreds, 150 media people <clears throat> there at the commissioner's office waiting to see what was going to happen. And then when we announced that we made the deal, Jimmy Cannon comes walking up to me. He was a little guy. He's got a big cigar. He said, that's what you did today. I said, what are you talking about, Jimmy? He said, you just broke down the salary structure of baseball. <laughs> and he went on. And finally, he wrote a column the next day, just blustered my ass. I mean, he really did. But Jimmy was a great writer. And when you did something good, he praised you. When you, when you screwed up, then he would burn your ass. And he, he, he thought because I destroyed the structure of baseball, which, you know, it had never been done that a player traded held out and then got a race on his current contracts. That had never happened to the baseball system. So I went to Cleveland. <laughs> I I really I've never been to a place I didn't have a good time in. So I had a good ballpark. It was the biggest ballpark in the major leagues. Uh she had to kill it to get it out of when I joined them, Alvin Dark said, Look, we got some great pictures all he said David, the, the culture of baseball was different. Managers told you what they wanted you to do. If you were a running butt type guy, he would tell you, I want you to get 15 or 20 butts this year because that's 30 or 40 points. And you're going to score more runs. If you're a home run here, he would tell you, and like Alvin told me, he said, all I want you to do with this pitching step we got in that big ballpark, if you hit me 20 home runs and drive at 75 runs, you'll have done your job. That's all I need to use, 20 home runs and 75 runs. Well, a lot of hitting 30 home runs, over 90-something. And we finished dead-ass last. <laughs> so, that was, it didn't work out that well. But uh, actually, the year before, when I hit 35 home runs to finish uh, 
third in the league. If I hit the ball the same way uh, in Cleveland playing in Fenway, it would have been 50 or 60 on line. Was Alvin Dark your favorite manager? Oh, yeah. He was, the best manager I ever played for for winning was Dick Williams. Dick uh, was a tough, sarcastic uh, ex-Marine, you know. And, uh, he played Alvin. Alvin had the best baseball mind. There were there there were guys like Alvin Dyer, Gene Mott, Paul Richards. Those were considered to be probably the three best baseball minds uh, in the game, and at that time frame. Uh, but Dick Williams did things as the manager that were out of the box that uh, that none of those other guys would have done, even though they did things that were out of the box. But Dick played hunches, he played instincts. And he made moves in a, in a ball game that, uh, well, he was a hell of a water. It's just a couple guys hated it. In fact, when we had our 40th uh, anniversary of the 6017, you know, they called me, they were going to have the 10th, and I, I didn't go. Then they called me when we were going to have our 20th, and I didn't go. They called me when I we have our 30th, I didn't go. And when they said, Hawk, we're having our 40th anniversary, I said, Hawk, you better get your ass up there. So I went up to Boston, and they had like 23 uh, members of the, of the team, 67 team that were there. And it was amazing, as you know, because the media was interviewing everybody, and it was amazing how many of those 23 guys said, then, 40 years later, I hated Dick Williams. I uh, couldn't stand him, but he was the best manager ever. You get credited for inventing the batting glove. Did you ever think, you know what, I should have trademarked it? Well, it was, you know... Necessity is the mother of invention. And, uh, oh, you know how that got, how that came about was, I was platooning, I was a young player at the time, and you gotta remember, minimum salary was $6,000 back in those days. And my first two years in the big league, I made more money playing golf, shooting pool, and arm wrestling than I did playing major league baseball. So, I was platooning and the Yankees came in, and the only time we ever drew any fans of Kansas City was when the, when the Yankees came in. So they had a right-hander scheduled to pitch that night, so Ted Bosefield and myself went out and played Sammy Esposito and Gino Simoli, uh, $25 match on the golf course. And of course, we killed them, but we played 27 holes because they wanted an emergency time. <laughs> so I go to the ballpark that night, and I look at the lineup, and shit, I'm in there at third, because the Yankees have switched from Jim Coates to Whitey Ford. And I developed playing the 27 holes, uh, developed a, a blister on my uh, ring finger, the bottom of my ring finger on my left hand. And I remembered I had my golf club because I went right from the golf course to the ballpark. So I went up, I got the golf club, and it was a flaming red golf club. And I came to the plate at the bottom of the first inning, and I was wearing this golf club, and I'm telling the Yankees were all over my ass, you know. You push, you know, all that stuff. Because <laughs> nobody, you know, had ever worn one. So anyway, don't you know why he hung me a curveball? I hit that some it's about 460 feet over that left center field wall. And I can't, every time I'd come to the plate, they were still on me, but not quite as bad. And then I hit another home one later on. <laughs> so what happened was, the next day, the Yankees all came out on the field wearing red golf gloves. Because Mantle had the clubhouse guy go out by a couple of dozen, and they all came out with red golf clothes on. So that's how the, that's how the hitting got started, out so, of necessity. 
How did you know when it was time to retire? When I broke my leg and dislocated my ankle sliding into second base uh, in spring training at 70. You know, in that rehab time, David, I, I just I just lost interest in playing the game. You know, two years earlier, I was player of the year and everything else. I had it figured out. I was 29 years old. And I just lost interest in playing the game. I did not want to play baseball anymore. And I told Gabe Paul, who was general manager, and I told Alvin, uh, you know, Gabe was the president of the club. Alvin was the general manager and manager. And Gabe was president of the club. And I, I told him, I said, I'm going to retire. I'm quitting. And uh, Gabe Paul, I talked to him on the phone, and he said, you're not going to quit. He said, who's going to walk away from that kind of money? And I told him over the phone, I said, Gabe, you just made a big mistake. And I, was I told him I was going to quit in Boston. The club was going to Boston on a road trip. And I wanted to have my last at bat at Fenway Park. So I announced it to the press that after that, I was going to uh, retire. And I'm a son of a gun. If we go up there, I'm going to pitch it in the last game. Alvin, we had it all worked out. Don't you know we got rained out? So I never got to get my last at bat at Fenway Park. I just lost interest in playing the game. I wanted to try something different. Uh, I've always been a guy that, that wanted to, what's the, what's the right phrase, that, that wanted a new challenge, you know, and I wanted to try golf. So, as I said, in, in June of, of 1971, I was playing baseball in the major leagues with the Cleveland Indians, and in June of 1972, I played in the British Open. Yeah, I think it's safe to say you're the only baseball player who's made it to the British Open a as a participant. How, do, how did you get started in golf? Well, I got started really. My we had a great we had a great American League team down in Savannah. In fact, a lot of scouts said it was one of the best, if not the best, League team they'd ever seen. So we won the state championship every year. And, uh, so. We had a coach down there who was our Air Force base is there in Savannah. And at that time, it was the largest sack base in the world. And we had a coach named Floyd Doss. He was major. And he had been a former baseball player. Didn't make it, so he went into the service. And he, he was our coach. After we won the state championship, he took a shortstop up and uh, somebody else and myself out. And I had never been on a golf course in my life, except the caddy. <laughs> and he took us out to play around the golf. And we went out to a place called Mary Calder, which was a nine-hole golf course there in Savannah. And I'll never forget, it's the first hole with Dog Lake Wright. And uh, we hadn't hit a practice ball, nothing. We just went out and teed up. And I hit a driver, and I just... Absolutely just killed it. And I just somehow scraped an iron up there and knocked in about a 20 footer at 12 30. It was the first hole of golf I ever played. And I wound up shooting, I think, 118 with that round. But my first hole in golf of 30, that was, in fact, my junior year in, in high school, I didn't even play baseball. I sat out. I didn't even play baseball. I just wanted to try to play golf. And my school, Benedictine Military Academy, did not have a golf team. And after I played for six months, I started to shoot far, you know, and so finally, I went to the, to the, uh, Father Pete, who was president of the school, and I said, I'd like to go play at the regional golf tournament because 
they didn't have a golf game. So he said, okay, well, we'll start something up to go play. So I went to uh, play in the city region and won it. And then I had to go to Spain, which was up near Atlanta. And that's how the golf team got started at Benedictine. Since then, they've won several state titles. Uh, so that's how I really got started. But my junior year, they some scouts told uh, some other people that by me sitting out and not playing baseball my junior year, it cost me a ton of money when I did try it when I was a senior. Did you want to go into broadcasting? Did I what? Did you want to go into broadcasting after you retired? Did I want to? Yes. No, I didn't even think about it. Uh, I had a a very bad temper, and that was the reason I didn't make it. I physically, like when I played in the British Open, for the first two days, nobody hit the ball better than I did. Green. But the first day I shot 75, I had six free putts. And I had five free putts the second day, and I missed a cut by a shot. So that'll tell you how good that I was hitting the ball. In fact, I led all American qualifiers uh, when I went over to Quash. I had 70, 68, it's terrible weather. And that was a low uh, American qualifier. And it just got to the point that the golf became, I, I couldn't focus. I'd go out with 14 clubs, and I'd come back with six or seven. And you can't beat those guys with six or seven clubs. They're too good. So, so you, had a, I you, had a, you had a temper on the course like Jimmy DeMerit or Julio Sporos? I, I, I'm having trouble understanding. Nope. You don't want to speak at all? No, I'm, I'm, I'm on a microphone. Let me go closer. So did you have a temper like yeah. Julio Sporos or Jimmy DeMerit? Jimmy DeMerit didn't have a bad temper. Tommy Bowles had a bad temper. I had, I had a temper like Tommy Bowles, only it was worse. <laughs> And uh, and Nicholas worked with me, and uh, he was going to talk me going into qualifying for the British Open because we were he was working with me and playing, and he asked me. I was here. He was going for the Grand Slam. He won the Masters and he won the U.S. Open. And we were playing down at the course. He said, "You going to go over and try to qualify for the Open?" And I said, "No." He said, "Hunk, you should." He said, "You're playing too good." So he's the one who talked me into going over, but. It got to the point that I had met my, at the time, now my wife, who in September we've been married for 41 years. And I, I fell deeply in love with her. And with my temper, as she was coming out on the golf course with me, we got married in 73. So she would come out on the golf course with me, and she would she saw my temper. And then in 74, we were playing in a tournament in Savannah, a mini tour event. And there were two-day events. So there were four of us that shot 68 the first day. There was myself, I think, Fuzzy, Bootslitsky, and uh, either Bobby Watkins or Bill Rogers, one or the other. We all shot 68. So we were paired together the second day. And I shot myself out the first nine holes. I three-played a couple of games. I, so after the round was over, I took my golf clubs. My wife, who was not my wife at the time, she was, uh, yeah, we just got married. And I took my golf clubs and I went over to the street and I fired them up against the street, broke every club in the bag. I looked at her and she started crying. And I knew that if I didn't change, I knew if I didn't change, I was going to lose her. And I, I quit. I, I mean, I just I said I'm quitting. And we had a long talk. My wife and I had a long talk that night. 
we talked about three o'clock in the morning, but I had promised, uh, a couple of guys where the money came for it the next day. And I had promised guys, of course I had other clubs, but that I would play in this money game the next day. And I told Maris, my wife, I said, honey, I'm going to play this round of day and that's what'll be it. And she said, good. So I went out and the next morning I went over to the club to have some breakfast. I'm having breakfast before we practice and eat all. And the waitress comes over and she says, oh, there's a phone call for you. And uh, I got up and went over and answered the phone. It was Mary Trank, who was uh, Tom Yonke, who owned the Red Sox, and Dick O'Connell was the general manager. It was their secretary. So Mary said, oh, Mary Trank said, uh, Richard wants to talk to you. That was Dick O'Connell. So I, I said, hello. He goes, talk, we want you to come up here and uh, audition for the uh, color job. It's on television. Now, just a few hours prior to this, we had made the decision that I was going to quit. And I didn't know what I would do. I knew it would probably be something baseball because I had a couple of offers to come back to DH because DH had just come into play in 73. So I'm talking with Dick, and they had like 700 applicants for the job. But when Dick calls, and asked me to come up and audition for it. I mean, that was like saying, come on up, you got the job. Because, you know, he was the one that's going to make the decision. So I went up and I got the job, and that was, uh, my first year was in 75, and Dick Stockton and I, uh, were partners, and that was my first year in broadcasting. But I had no idea. It was just ironic, though, that just hours, little, virtually hours after I had made the decision, quick off, didn't know what I was going to do. I get a call, and that was, uh, you know, 39 years ago. How, how did you end up with the White Sox? I, could, I, I can understand the Red Sox connection, but the White Sox doesn't seem to have a connection. Well, Jerry and Eddie bought the club in uh, 1980-81. And Harry and Jimmy were the announcers, and they wanted to make a change. They called Don Drysdale up, and then they called me up. And uh, they said we wanted, but they want we wanted to put Dysdale and yourself together in the booth. They were going to let Harry and uh, Jimmy go. And I had three years left on the contract with the Red Sox, so I called up the station manager and I had lunch with him at Jimmy's Harborside Restaurant there in Boston. And, uh, I told him I said this is what they've offered me, and I said I've got three years I know left on this contract, and I'll honor that. He said, oh, I couldn't ask you to honor it. I can't make that. I can't keep that kind of money. So I signed a five-year deal to come to, uh, to Chicago, and uh, which was my favorite city anyway. Again, I, I've been the luckiest son of this ever still to be on the face of the earth in my life. This has been unbelievable. It seems so like that's every, how I got to Chicago. Everything you touch, it seems like, touch turns to gold. I mean, you never hit a worry. Everything just... Happened right when it happened. You never struggled, it seemed like. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of internal struggle, a lot of internal battles. Uh, when you, as I said, when you had a temper bad about it, my temper really was beneficial in baseball. It, it, baseball, you can just, you know, hockey, you can have a bad temper. And I've always said, if there's such a thing as reincarnation, I want to come back as one of three things. So I either come back as Neil Donald, <laughs> a hockey player, or an eye drop salesman. Why an eye drop salesman? <laughs> well, I've had two operations on both 
eyes at the test retinas and cataracts. Okay? They give you these little bottles of eye drops. Cost like four or five hundred dollars a bottle. Whoa. And they work. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, I'm, these eye drops they look like a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> was was there pres- no, was I, there was there pressure on you and Don Drysdale to basically be more conservative because of what the Sox went through with Harry and Jimmy? No, we didn't, we didn't change. There are a lot of guys that uh, a lot of guys when I. When I left to become general manager in 86, a lot of guys said that Dysdale and myself was the best team ever. So we had a, we had a great time. We had a great acceptance, great following. Uh, and Don, Don, to me, was the consummate announcer. I mean, if you're talking about professionalism, knowledge of the game, the whole nine yards, Don, to me, was absolutely we, well, I think one reason we hit it off here is because we used to argue on the air. We'd get to argue. In fact, we almost got a couple of fights, physically. I'm glad we didn't, because that big chairman, that's not a big six, six. He was I was going to say, he was a pretty big guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, fights. one thing, like I said, you know, baseball game where little guys not afraid of big guys. <laughs> what did you learn from your one season as White Sox general manager? That it's the worst fucking job in the world. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 Eight days a week, twenty-five hours a day. That's what it is. If you if you're gonna get the job done, because when I got there, you know the club was uh, they had won in '83, winning ugly, and the club though if they didn't have anything in the farm system, that club was really going bad. And uh, simply put, somebody had to clean it up, and I did. I did. In fact, the day I left, I. I told Jay Nettie, I said, okay, you're on a level playing field now. I said, if you get somebody in here who's good in amateur drafts, in amateur scouting, I said, by 1990, this organization will be right where it should be. And I'm a son of a gun, so 1990 to 1998, for those nine years, the only team that won more games with the White Sox than the White Sox was the Atlanta Braves. You did something, though, as GM that I was happy you did. When you fired La Russa, I was so tired of him at that time. I just felt it was time for him to go. We needed fresh blood because it seemed like the team, like you said, there wasn't, wasn't any talent there, and it seemed like they just quit on him. Well, you know, I'm not going to go into the whys and wherefores. The only thing I'm going to say about that situation is that, is that Tony, I didn't fire him. I felt bad for Tony. Because every time, as you recall, every time he stuck his head out of the dugout, got the fans killing And, I mean, this was, and when Tony had balls, he, he wouldn't send a pitching coach out there or they duck and he'd just go out himself. And every time he walked out of the dugout, the fans would just, I mean, crucify him. So finally, after a game one night, I went into his office and uh, sat down and I looked at him and I said, Tony, I gotta do one or two things. He said, what's that? I said, either going to fire you or I got to make you a hero. And he looked at me and he laughed. He said, well, you're not going to make me a hero. Well, as it turned out, obviously, I did. So, no, I didn't fire Tony because he, he was a bad manager. I, fired, I, always, I always thought I had nothing but respect for Tony, okay, because I knew him when he was 18 years old, and I knew him for a long time. And he was the first manager that I hired because when I came in, his contract was up. And I hired him. And, you know, he managed for 34 years, which is absolutely phenomenal because 
He managed 34 years in the big leagues, only got fired one time, and I was the guy that fired him. Is he going to thank you in his acceptance speech this year? <laughs> I don't know. I'm a, we're gonna have dinner together. We're gonna have dinner together Friday night. So uh, I'm going there. For, I've never been there for the induction, but I'm gonna go there for uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then come back Sunday night. Do you have any uh, Nehru Nehru jackets in uh, in a closet at home somewhere? Yes. No, don't even fucking go there. <laughs> don't even go there. I bought one of every color. They had like six colors, and I bought one. I bought had one of every color, and the only one I got a chance to wear was the one on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And they went out of style. That's how quick they went out of style. <laughs> you almost killed the fashion I, industry single-handedly. I'm telling you, that, that Jesus Christ, that was. I finally finally wound up giving those to some. Uh, you know, I was. Single style, I finally wound up giving those some young ladies who had them cut down, you know, and asked me if they could have one for, you know, a souvenir. <laughs> you could have gave him the Jack Brickhouse. He never turned down free clothes. I don't think, we'd have, I don't think you, you guys were the same size. <laughs> hey, hey, yeah. <laughs> You've given out a lot of nicknames over the years, you know, from the Big Hurt among zillions of others. Do you have a favorite nickname that, uh, You've created? Yeah. yeah. There was one of the kids we had at my favorite, uh, oh, the little second baseman we had at Kansas City, who I just love. We all loved him. He was such a great guy. His name was John Donaldson. And I nicknamed him Scooby Back Doobie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that was my favorite all the time. Of course, Big Hurt's probably one, you know, one of the most famous. I think the coach is that what, third or fourth all time, uh, Nickname in baseball history. But back in those days, the culture was different. You know, the culture of the game was different. Everybody had a nickname. That's something you couldn't say over the air, you know, probably. <laughs> but it was very common. Like, I gave Dick Howard his nickname, Slick. And that's what everybody, you know, that's his career. Everybody called him Slick. I mean, his friends and teammates and players who played for him. But we all had nicknames. You know, it was, uh, and if it wasn't a nickname, it was a number. If to this day, I still call Al Kaline six. Every time I see him, I say, how you doing, six? Great to see you, buddy. Uh, you know, it, it, that was the thing. You either had a nickname or they were sure to get called by your number. That was just the way it was done back in the day. Everybody's mentioning now that Ozzy should get back with the White Sox. Could you picture yourself and Ozzy calling games one time? Uh, let me let me say one thing about Ozzy. Ozzy and I had a, a falling out. Uh, towards the end there. We had a period that we didn't speak to each other. But that doesn't mean, uh, I love Ozzy. I love his family. Uh, I'll always love him. I, uh, I saw him as a kid come up. And people forget in 2004, if we don't lose the big hurt and mags, we probably win it then too. That was his first year managing. And you can't lose those two guys because when the, they both went down, we were in first place. And then in 2005, he wins it all. And he was, there was no question in my mind that the big reason, there were two big reasons that we won the world championship in, in 05. The first one was Ivy. No doubt about it. And the next one was AJ Pierce Those were the two reasons that the, we won the world championship in 05. And Ivy, he, I just, I, you know, he just made a, 
monumental. You just can't go down to Little Havana and say what he said. You know, you, you can't do that. You got, I was, I was really afraid for Bob's life, to tell you the truth. I told my wife, I said, I have to, I hope, I hope they get him out of there because it was not beyond my realm of, of thinking that, that somebody would have killed him. Too many families down there were hurt, you know, by Castro. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just can't say in the middle of managing the Miami Marlins that you respect Castro and you love him, blah, 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 blah. You can't do it. And he did it. And I'm sure he's sorry for it now. But Ozzy was a great, great, and in 04 and 05, a great manager. There's no question about it. And, uh, Personally, I hope he gets back into baseball. I think, you know, people make mistakes. Everybody, you make them, I make them. And sometimes they're so severe that you can't overcome them. And this might be one of those signs. I hope it's not. Because Ozzy loves the game. And he's, uh, he, he's a manager that, you know, adds something to baseball that Billy Martin did. Uh, you know, Earl Weaver. People don't pay to come out and see a manager manage. But in Billy Martin's case, a lot of people did. In Old Weaver's case, a lot of people did. In Ozzy's case, a lot of people did. So I just feel bad because I love his wife best. I love the three boys. And uh, they're a wonderful family. I mean, they're really, they're really a wonderful family. That does it for another edition of Sports and Torts. Hope you enjoyed our interview with Ken Harrelson. If you'd like to hear more, we have about another 20 or so minutes at the TalkZone.com website. I'd like to thank Hawk for taking the time. Tune in again next time for Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. TalkZone.com.